everyone, and welcome to today's podcast episode of Where Does Your Journey Stem From? Hosted by myself, Dr. Karina Minardi. Today we are joined by a driven environmental engineer, Hosea, who is a graduate student at Carnegie Mellon University. Let's all welcome to the stage, Hosea. Hey, Hosea, how's it, how's it going? Hey. Good, I'm glad, we are glad you are here. Hosea Santiago Cruz is a Puerto Rican engineer and scientist. He holds a BS in chemical engineering from the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez. Hosea is a third year PhD student in environmental engineering at Carnegie Mellon University and a National Science Foundation graduate research fellow. His research focuses on enhancing treatment techniques to remove and destroy pollutants from water, specifically PFAS or PER and polyfluoroalkyl substances, also called forever chemicals. In addition to pursuing his PhD, Josea forms part of Amando Oceano, a nonprofit organization working on preserving Puerto Rico's marine and coastal ecosystems through education and conservation. How admirable. Well, we are um, just absolutely excited to have you, Josea, today. Um, and usually our first question that we ask people is, tell us a little bit about yourself, your background, what drives you as a scientist and as a person. Yeah, uh, first of all, thank you so much for having me here. It's definitely a pleasure for me to, you know, talk to you and, you know, share my experience uh, for a broader audience. Um, so my background, like you already mentioned, I I studied my bachelor's chemical engineering, and there I did some research uh, involving surfactants and colloids. And going to grad school now, I transitioned into environmental engineering. So... <laughs> Uh, funny joke I, I I constantly say is just like, you know, I like in chemical engineering, you're usually producing stuff and like putting it out to the world. So like as an environmental engineer now, I want to like remove that stuff from the world in a way that's, uh, you know, safe and, uh, you know, equitable and sustainable for, for the environment and for human health. Um, so like you mentioned too, I'm originally from Puerto Rico and I feel like a lot of my upbringing led me to uh, pursuing like this degrees in chemical engineering and finally environmental engineering now. So if you started in chemical and then you pivoted to environmental, um, how did you actually get your initial start then in chemical engineering? Yeah, so whenever I entered college, like I, I was interested in science and uh, engineering specifically, but I actually started with biotechnology uh, just because like, you know, I, I thought I I liked that stuff, but like going to the first year of biotechnology, I realized, you know, maybe this isn't my thing. Like it's not really engineering and not really, you know, like it was like very focused into biopharma research and uh, that sort of career. And I kind of like wanted something else, but during my second year, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Like I did want to do something like related to chemistry and engineering. And uh, ideally I wanted to do something like more like aerospace or like, you know, going to Mars or something. <laughs> uh, so like I, I figured like the, the closest link was chemical engineering. Um, but yeah, once I got there, uh, you know, a lot of the chemical engineering background is usually also like in, at least in Puerto Rico, like focus on pharmaceuticals and, you know, legacy, as a legacy, like petrochemicals and other sorts of industries. Um, so like being in the department, like I didn't really feel like 
a strong connection to the industry side um, of stuff, but I did have a lot of friends working in, at least in the agricultural sector, like in, in the university, and they were doing a lot of research on like sustainable agriculture and like environmental issues. And that kind of like motivated me to be like, what if I just use my chemical engineering knowledge to like um, apply it for environmental, like applied in environmental settings and like uh, solving environmental issues like pollution and stuff. But it was still like really hazy. Like, you know, like third year, coming to third year, I didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew research was like something that might be attractive because, you know, like I, I read articles and stuff and research seemed pretty cool, but I didn't really know what it was until like I started. So uh, during my third, yeah, I think third year of my bachelor's, uh, uh, I was taking fluid di fluid dynamics uh, with my professor called Caribe Nacevedo. And I really liked the class. And then one day she presented like what she did in her lab and it involves surfactants and colloids and like kind of nanoscience stuff. And she she worked in more in the fundamental fields. However, like she presented like the different applications of like nanoscience and colloids. And then like in one of it said like, oh, and this, you can also use this fundamental knowledge to create, uh, you know, like uh, employ environmental remediation, like capture of contaminants from groundwater or water systems that removed them from the environment. And that seemed pretty cool to me. So I, like, I took her class, I did really good in it, and I decided to like, talk to her to see if she had any research precisions. And because she was a new faculty, um, she was kind of hesitant at first because she actually wanted like, more like grad students in her lab, but she brought me in either way as just like a, as a volunteer. And that's where like, you know, like my passion towards research like, actually started because I was actually in the lab, I was doing stuff. And I felt kind of empowered through my my work. <laughs> and even though like she specifically didn't like do like environmental sort of research, like it was still like I always had in my mind this can always be applied to something in the future. So whenever I did apply to grad school, that experience with her was like, you know, like pivotal and important uh, to to applying uh, to to environmental engineering. Well, and what I what I enjoy um, that you mentioned before is that you know chemical engineering, environmental engineering is an amalgamation of theoretical, fundamental, um, all fields of STEM. Frankly, I mean dynamic um, fluid dynamics is heavy in math, um, and and then you also have the engineering component. And so I guess my question to you is, you know, when you were a kid, was there like how how was STEM introduced to you? And was it introduced to you in a positive light that then pushed you into becoming that sort of like curious or tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, you're asking me that question. The first thing that came to mind was being a kid and, and watching Mythbusters, <laughs> like the television show at Discovery Channel. And you know, like I love that stuff. Like it, you know, even though like half of the show was just blowing stuff up, like, they still like underwent the scientific method, right? Like they did the research first and then like tested hypothesis and then like, you know, like run experiments to test it and then blow it up. I don't know. But like, that was really inspiring for me. Like as a, as a kid, you know, like growing up and being like, you know, science is really cool. Like, but you know, like it, 
you know, I didn't think about it seriously as a career yet, but I, it was like something in my mind. And I would say like in high school, I just had really good um, teachers. Uh, you know, I, I remember like my chemistry teacher, like in seventh and eighth grade and throughout high school, like she was really cool and, and presented science in a way that, you know, like directed more like, yeah, you can actually do this as a career. And it was really cool. And and I think like through her and other teachers, specifically math teachers in high school, like kind of like fueled my interest in like, you know, maybe an engineering degree might be cool. Um, but I feel like in high school, I just had a lot of interest too. Like I was into music, I was into, you know, other stuff, but I just figured like, you know, I can still do music. I can still do my other passions, but in order to get like an engineering job or something, I do need to like study and actually do a degree in that. Uh, so yeah, that's why I just decided to go into like, a, a STEM field. But it, I want to say like it, yeah, it was always like a thing there, but it wasn't like very sure until I got to college. So we took a, a sort of retrospective look on how you got introduced to STEM, how you um, navigated through STEM in in um, undergrad and then up or yeah, and then grad. Um, you know, tell us a little bit about your career aspirations. I think that that kind of is a great segue because you were talking a little bit about you can always do music, just like I love to read. I can always read, but it's not necessarily a career in reading, you know. So what what do you want to do when you grow up? Yeah, I'm still figuring that figuring that one out. But um I wanna say like coming into grad school, I feel like that decision was heavily um you know, the the weight on it was always to go back home to Puerto Rico. Like the idea was always just like, you know, I I become, you know, really good at this thing, especially like environmental engineering, like and once I get that degree, I can come back and, you know, do research at my home, do research like in a field that in Puerto Rico, it's still not very developed. Um, I feel like other industries are, you know, like industries in STEM, like in Puerto Rico, like pharma, like um, manufacturing, like that's very present in Puerto Rico, but like an environmental focused um uh, discipline isn't as as widely available in Puerto Rico. So I do want to like bring that expertise back and hopefully like do research, whether it's uh, independently by myself, like, you know, creating some sort of nonprofit or something or through the University of Puerto Rico, like coming back as a professor, doing my research, but also like teaching. And I think that was, you know, a very strong reason why to go back um, to always somewhat like contribute back to to my home well and they made such a great impact on you right so it's just kind of i guess paying it forward for a lack of a better term um yeah so that's that's really powerful um so let's talk a little bit about your research because i think i mentioned well i did mention it obviously in your bio but um you know, I, I want to talk, I want you to give a little bit of an overview of, you know, the, the importance of PFAS, sort of the, the overview, so on and so forth. Right. 
So I'm I'm gonna give like a broad <laughs> introduction of what PFAS is because I think like there's a lot of you know you may have heard forever chemicals or PFAS compounds, but I feel like in media it's 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 really not clear or like the communication about it is like very hazy because it's such a broad concept. So per and polyfluoroalkyl substances is not just one chemical but a family of synthetic chemicals that are characterized by the carbon fluorine bond. So imagine like a hydrocarbon, it's just like a carbon chain that has hydrogens on it and it's saturated with hydrogens. That's what we call the hydrocarbon because it has hydrogens on carbon. So a fluorocarbon is just like replacing all those hydrogens for fluorines and then you have a fluorocarbon. So that fluoroalkyl chain is a big part of what makes PFAS so characteristic. But the interesting thing about PFAS is that it's not just a fluoroalkyl chain, but it, it's usually like accompanied by a head group, what we call, and that head group is hydrophilic or water soluble. So imagine soap. So soap is a molecule that has both a hydrophobic tail, so a, a group that doesn't like water, and then a hydrophilic head group that likes water. So it has a property of being, uh, of mixing, uh, you know, immiscible fluids or like fluids like oil and water. So that's why you use soap. You put it in a mixer with oil and water and it's going to mix. Um, so fluorocarbons are kind of like soaps. There are soaps, <laughs> but just like very, you know, like they have you that fluorocarbon uh, tail. And this is really useful for different applications. So the thing with the fluorocarbon bond is that is one of the strongest bonds in organic chemistry. So that bond is really, really strong. And, you know, like it's chemical resistant, it's heat resistant, and it even gives it this property of um, being both oilophobic, so repelling of oils, and hydrophobic, so like repelling of water. So it makes it a substance that doesn't really stick to anything. So when you think about PFAS, you, the first thing that comes to mind is might be a Teflon pan. So Teflon is a fluoropolymer. So it has that carbon fluorine bond, but it doesn't have a hydrophilic head group. So it's just like a plastic or like a composite material that has these fluorocarbon bonds. So it's heat resistant, chemical resistant, uh, it's slippery. <laughs> Uh, so it has a lot of applications because of that special property of the fluorocarbon bond. However, so it's used in, you know, like Teflon pans, it's used in clothing, like for impermeable, um, sportswear or clothing, clothing wear. It's used in a bunch of different applications, but the same things that make them useful also make them very dangerous or very problematic. So that carbon fluorine bond, right? Like it doesn't break down. So it doesn't degrade in the environment. So it stays a long time in the environment and it doesn't break down. So if it stays a long time in the environment, it has enough time to go into your body and go into vital organs. And that can lead to toxic effects. And the presence of PFAS in the body um, is associated with, uh, well, immune disorders. So, so decreased vaccine response. It's associated with certain types of cancer, specifically um, liver uh, cancer and testicular cancer and a variety of different other things. But, you know, like 
like I said, this is a large family of chemicals. So there's not just one. Actually, there's more than 5,000 known perfluorinated chemicals out there in different applications. So we just touching the surface on the toxicity of these, this class of chemical. You have this, the, this wide diversity of properties of chemicals, of structures. You have this persistence in the environment because of that carbon flowing bond, which leads to toxicity because it stays a long time in the environment and in our bodies. And the most interesting thing for me is that different from other contaminants in the environment, we think about like um, legacy pollutants like PCDs, DDT. Um, so these are really hydrophobic compounds because they don't have like a hydrophilic hedge group. So like they usually stay in the soil, they stay in the bodies, that way they bioaccumulate. But the interesting about PFAS is that they're very soluble in water because they, they're like soap. Because they're like soap, they're very mobile in water. So they're really hard to remove because traditional wastewater treatment is designed to just remove the hydrophobic stuff. So that's the stuff that sticks into like soil, um, but PFAS just like moves with the water. So it's really hard to treat. Um, and that's kind of where my research comes in. So with PFAS, the best way to treat it now in a large scale and like at your homes is using an activity carbon filter. So think about your Brita filter that you put in your tap water. So you pass it through your tap water and ideally all the contaminants passes through and sticks to the filter. And then you have clean water in the end. However, as you may know, if you have a fil Brita filter, you have to replace these filters every once in a while uh, because they, they get gunked up or, you know, like get, they get saturated with these um, contaminants. So in a large scale, you know, you, you might imagine like a house sized drum of like activated carbon. And, you know, like once they're expended and exhausted, like there's only two options currently uh, to what to do with that activated carbon filter. So you can either landfill it, like just sort of dispose of it in a landfill. And that has some problems because like over time, uh, research has shown that these compounds can leach out um, and like from the landfill back into the environment. So you're not actually destroying them. You're like, just like capturing them, but then like putting it somewhere else. The second option to do is um, use thermal treatments. So literally just blast it with like heat or like incinerate the carbon material. And that way you remove part, like some of the contaminants. And you know, like if you get it up to like high enough temperature, so a thousand Celsius, um, you can break down those carbon fluorine bonds and actually like reduce the toxicity. However, as most incinerators, as most thermal treatments do, they don't go up to a thousand degrees Celsius. So you're going to have like partially degraded byproducts. So like, just imagine like snipping that tail and then you have like two PFAS now <laughs> instead of one. So uh, it's, it's not, it's not an efficient solution because like you need a lot of energy to, to do this in a large scale, and also you're not degrading it completely. And once all the compounds are removed from the carbon, you can reuse the carbon back into like a wastewater treatment plant or something. So right now, like I'm testing um, a UV treatment, so a photocatalytic system that has shown to degrade PFAS in water, just like plain old water. But when you have uh, solid particles, like this, these filter materials, 
um, it gets more interesting because like you can have the compound in the water phase, but also stuck to the carbon. So that degradation process is more complex. So my research like goes into that, like how can we efficiently degrade these compounds on the surface of the particle without using thermal treatments? So I was taking copious notes because you hit on some really um, fascinating things, I, I, th I personally think. Yeah. Um, I guess, and maybe this is a quasi-rhetorical question or one in which you can't necessarily answer, but the carbon-fluorine bond is known to be the strongest bond, has been known to be that way for decades, if not centuries, right? Yeah. Um, and so I... I guess it's almost like, did these folks, and you said they were all synthesized, so they're all synthetic chemicals. So whoever did synthesize them had to know that these are going to be almost impossible to remediate once unleashed into the environment, I would assume. Yeah, so check this out. So <laughs> this is, yeah, this is where we get into like the deep, like, like questioning the, the chemical industry in itself, right? Like, and how like lack of regulation, like actually leads to more of these problems. So like when we think about, um, I don't know if you've read Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. Rachel Great Carson. Book. Yeah, yeah. So Rachel Carson, a scientist, a biologist, I think. And she, she published this book called Silent Spring and like in the sixties. And so during that time, they recently developed um, this new pesticide called DDT. Um, I'm not gonna tell you what, what it stands for, but essentially it's like this molecule that, you know, it's really good at killing insects and, you know, it, it helped kill malaria vectors and whatever. But the interesting thing is that it, instead of a fluorine bond, it was based on chlorine. So if we think about the periodic table, we have all the halogens. The halogens are as like an overview are like, I, I think iodide, chlorine and fluorine. And they're characterized because they have like strong electronegativity. So like they really like to hoard their electrons together. So that's what makes that bond really strong. So like the up you the upper you go in the periodic table, the stronger that is. So if you have iodine, that's pretty strong. But then if you go higher, you have chlorine, that's strong as very, very strong. But if you go one step higher, you have fluorine, and that's the highest electronegativity. So yeah, so like back in the 60s, they started making all these chlorinated chemicals like DDT, you have like PCBs, which is another uh, chlorinated chemical, it's a chlorinated solvent. Uh, you have a TCE, which is another useful chlorinated solvent. And all this time, like Rachel Carson, like was like very distraught about like this because she saw the effects, uh, you know, like in the bird population. That's why it's called Silent Spring because like she envisioned a world where like chemicals were just like indiscriminately placed into the environment and like killing um, both the ecosystem and our human health. And after the publication of that uh, amazing and pivotal book, like the public consciousness on like chemicals and pollution, like started to like gain like center field. And after that book, like the U.S. Uh, started regulating these these organic chemicals. However, like you know, her work didn't stop there. Like we're still dealing with 
well, halogenated chemicals up to this day. Like, if she would have seen, like, PFAS, she would think, like, you know, like, we didn't learn anything from what she wrote back in the 60s. Like, this is just, like, the latest iteration of these uh, chemicals, you know, like, these fluorinated, uh, halogenated chemicals. And the problem with PFAS is, um, like I mentioned earlier, like, it's not just one chemical. It's a class, a large extremely large class of chemicals but the way well the way the u.s government regulates is like through specific chemicals so um the first of these PFASs that um was uh big in the news was pfoa also called c8 um and back in the early 2000s uh that became a big deal uh, you can watch the movie called dark waters um with mark ruffalo i think and it explains the story of how like this um, town in West Virginia was like just drinking like P PFOA contaminated water. Um, and the thing is like, you know, like after that, like chemical industry said, okay, we're going to stop producing PFOA in the United States. Then everyone was like, okay, cool. This is a step forward. However, because there wasn't a regulation on PFAS as a class, like they just like, made a different perfluorinated chemical like and that's where uh you get this new chemical called gen x which is just like a different form of pfoa um and you know like as we continue regulating individual chemicals uh we're never gonna hit the spot because they're just gonna like keep on producing a different moiety of the molecule and i think that's the biggest issue right because i can i can make like the best uh water treatment uh technique in the world but however if you don't regulate these chemicals and the faucet is still open like we're still going to be exposed to uh that sort of contamination um yeah i don't know if <laughs> i went into tangent there um no that that's i mean that's precisely it because i think as you said you know in the 60s it was saying chlorinated carbons are bad for the environment so why would you ever make something even stronger even <laughs> even stronger uh, better faster um yeah. it's gonna be even worse yeah so i i think like i i i gave a one-sided story let, let me tell like the other side of the story there was this terrible fire in an aircraft carrier and there was no way to stop the fire and you know after that the do and you know like so many service men and women like died during that fire and the Department of Defense, like, said we need to find a way, uh, you know, like, some sort of firefighting uh, solution to this. Because, like, we can't, you know, like, this is going to continue happening if, if we don't find a solution. So they partner up with a chemical company. I don't remember which one it was. And they generated the first fluorinated uh, firefighting foam. And that, so, like, it's the same piece, like, a cocktail of PFAS, and because the carbon-fluorine bond is resistant to heat, because it, it's like a foam, it's like a soap, it can spread on a surface and it won't burn. And that was the solution they found. Like this very useful chemical bond finally solved, like, you know, the problem for hydrocarbon uh, fires. And you know, like after that uh, innovation, like all the major airports, all the major military bases um, use this class C um, firefighting foam, which is fluoro, fluorocarbon based. So like if you live close to an airport, close to a military base, 
it's very likely that your groundwater is contaminated with, um, uh, you know, PFAS because of this very specific reason. And, you know, like you, you asked, like, why was this created? And, you know, because it was useful because it like it at that moment and still today, like it saves lives. And like there's there was this recent paper called, uh, you know, like thinking about PFAS in a more holistic way, like and thinking about like the essential use concept, like what is the essential uses of PFAS? Like maybe firefighting foams for very specific reasons. And and maybe we don't need it in tooth floss, you know, like so like it's kind of like contextualizing where do we need these chemicals or not, or can a day be replaced with a less toxic um, chemical? Um, yeah, so yeah, that's the reason why. <laughs> well, yeah, and I, I wrote moral conundrum, right? Because that's exactly right. There are some use cases in which I could think that the benefits outweigh the risks, whereas there are other use cases where the risks completely outweigh the benefits. Um, the unfortunate thing for me that I'm thinking through is that even though it's really good to be used for fighting fires, it's still volatile. So it doesn't degrade, but it becomes volatile and then it gets into the atmosphere and then it, it contributes to the greenhouse effect. So regardless, you're still actually contributing to the greenhouse effect or you're contributing to the environmental toxicity or even human toxicity. Um, and, and, you know, I mean, that's, that's a good question around cost benefit analysis. Talk to us a little bit about uh, the UV catalytic system. We started this project because we kind of like wanted to, you know, explore like uh, this question, this really fundamental question is if PFAS can even degrade on a surface, like on, like if we think about a activated carbon particle, like it's going to be like the PFAS will be stuck inside of it. So can it even be degraded through chemical means? Like um, in my case, we're using a photocatalytic system. So how it works is that we have, okay, this, is, this might be dense, but we have like a molecule that we call a sensitizer. And once we shoot like a photon of UV light, it produces this reactive species we're calling hydrate electron. And what it means is just like, a very reactive species that have, you know, shown to degrade PFAS. So what it does is just like, um, it's a redox chemistry uh, thing. So it's going to reduce the PFAS. So like bring it back to like, you know, like it's, it's original oxidation uh, uh, number. So like you're removing those fluorines and actually creating like oxidative, like re reduced products. Um, so our question was, can we use this very reactive system to degrade PFAS on the surface of these materials? Um, because like in order to use this photocatalytic method, um, you can't really use it like um, at the trace levels there are in the environment, right? You can't just like put your tap water, turn on UV light because it's gonna be really energy intensive. And because PFAS exists in such low concentrations in the environment, um, you know, it's it's not feasible. So you need a way to concentrate it all into all the PFAS in one place and then like degrade it with this method. And that's where we thought, well, let's just like use absorbent. Like, like let's use like these filter materials and see if they degrade. And turns out like, well, yeah, it turns out like through our research, it's, um, you know, it might not be the best idea. <laughs> 
because like you have these particles, right? And you have light. So like the particles might block the light and turns out the PFAS on the surface isn't degrading as quickly as PFAS in the liquid. And that kind of makes sense because like we're generating these species in the liquid phase, but not on the particle. So it might have a hard time finding the PFAS inside, but we're still not sure. That's like an open research question. Um, so yeah, an ideal way to treat it would be with a material that can capture and then release uh, these fluorinated chemicals on command. So that way we can like, you know, have an adsorbent that captures it. And then once it's like saturated, we can release it in a smaller volume to be treated. But that way we can reuse the, the, the material without putting it in the reactor. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, the speed to reaction of a liquid versus that of a solid state is, is makes sense. Um, in all transparency, I was not very good at photochemistry. I yeah. really did not like it, nor was I good at it, nor did I understand it. You got all these excited states, and I was just like, this is way too much for me. Yeah. Um, for for me, it's still like kind of magical. Like I'm just like, yeah, this is happening. I don't, I don't, I don't know, like how. But like I, I, you know, like I work in the engineering space. Like okay, we have this system that works somehow. I know the fundamentals of why it's working, why it's not. But I don't know like the quantum mechanics. <laughs> like that's beyond me. Like <laughs> yeah. yeah, that that course killed me. Um, yeah. I will be honest. Um, so props to you. Um, <laughs> With that, I mean, your your research is just so, so interesting and it's it's so fascinating because it's tangible to right now, it's tangible to historical perspective. There's a policy um, angle, there's an engineering angle, there's a chemistry angle, there's an environmental angle. I mean, there's so many different angles. And so, you know, circling back to your, well, my question to you about your career, I mean, you could take this in so many different areas. Um, which I think is is actually really cool. Yeah, yeah. That, that's one thing I'm excited about, like of nailing with with PFAS at least. Like, I honestly didn't know anything about it before going to grad school, and then like my advisor to like pitched this project with PFAS, and I'm like, whoa, this is this goes deep. Like, this is a, this is a rabbit hole, and that you know, like that's exciting because like there's so many, like you said, different angles, and I feel like. Going back to my career, like I, I do want to return to Puerto Rico and like, you know, like in the U.S., like there's, you know, PFAS is a hot topic. Like everyone is kind of like looking for the money to do it. Everyone is trying to find it in their water supply. However, in Puerto Rico, like it's still pretty quiet. Like not many people are are researching PFAS in Puerto Rico. And like there's been a few studies on tap water and um, but like not as extensive as it has been in the U.S., so yeah that's where i hope like my expertise can come in because like you know like i feel like once you start looking for it anywhere but specifically in puerto rico like you're gonna start finding it and for like i mentioned before like in terms of like you know if you live near an airport an air force base uh previously used um firefighting facility uh, previously used like military facility you will find them and the thing with Puerto Rico is that um I guess I should have mentioned too like I so I entered the, you know I did want to go to environmental engineering because like you're you know there's this 
historical memory of like what has happened to Puerto Rico in the past, like um, just briefly, like, so the US Navy used to do a lot of military exercises in one of the islands of Puerto Rico. And that was a big like movement to remove the Navy from, from that space, you know, cause like people were just fed up and, but you know, like they operated there, like they did their training exercises there for like 50 years and they finally left, but they left like legacy contamination in this area. So like unexploded ordinances, like heavy metals. However, no one has looked for PFAS yet. You know, how can I, how can my science actually like help people and like help, um, you know, remediate uh, these, these, these areas. So I think that's right now a big driver, like um, to go back. Um, Cause I feel like it's, it's going to be very needed once that, uh, that box is open. I know we've talked, um, we're running at time, but I know we've talked a little bit about a couple of different things prior to the podcast. And so I guess my last question to you that I'm going to leave you with is, um, you know, hindsight being 2020, what, what kind of words of wisdom would you have given yourself 10 years ago um, about grad school, about chemical engineering, environmental engineering, STEM even? Yeah, so 10 years ago, <laughs> I would be, yeah, still in high school or something, but I don't know, like in general, um, I would have liked to know more. Like I would have liked to know what actually going to grad school implied and like from a younger age, you know, like I feel like I really started to know what it was like the last two two years of college. And, you know, like I was really hyped. <laughs> I was really hyped about it. Like, um, but being here already, like it, it you know, things, you know, like change, like it's not as like uh, pretty as I thought it was, it's not as pure as I thought it was. Um, so yeah, I would, I would, so like kind of like two things, like, yeah, know what you're going into. Like, it's a very like competitive field. Like it's, it's, you know, like, you're gonna have people questioning you a lot like you're gonna have people like you know just like testing you so like there's all these hoops that you have to like jump and like sometimes you just get a pat in the back and that's like <laughs> you know that's that's really frustrating um but also i i would have liked to tell myself that from a very young age like you're capable you know like i think that's really important too i at least had my aunt and she like did her PhD, but like in literature, and she was like very influential in you know my decision of going to grad school. But I don't think I would have considered it as hardly if I didn't have her like as as you know like somewhat of a mentor like throughout this process and knowing that I I could do it. Um, so yeah, like I I would like find my allies and and you know like know that I that you are capable and like. Um, and always have that support. And I feel like, yeah, research is cool. And, you know, you can make a career out of it, but you can't, for, at least for me, like, I, I, 
I hope I don't get lost in it. Like I hope, like I really like being here. I think like in grad school now, I think the most important thing isn't like doing hard work, doing like whatever. I think is like the, the most important thing for me was like maintaining my connections with my family, maintaining my connections with my friends, maintaining my connections with the people who who really support me. Because in the end, like that's the thing that matters. Like that's the thing that um, in the end is going to make you like hold through. Well, on that heavy note, um, I thank you, Hosea, for your time and your fascinating research and explanation of it. Um, it's been such a joy to have you um, describe, I think, from the molecular structure all the way to the environmental impacts. I think it's just, it's so cool. Um, detrimentally cool, unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for sure. Still cool. Um, so I thank you and to our listeners, um, thank you again for listening and always remember to ask yourself, where does your journey stem from? Bye guys. Thank you. <laughs>